Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I had an interesting conversation with someone on the way to shul. By the way, walking to shul, walking to shul, walking back to shul, this is like one of the the great joys of, of keeping Shabbos, by the way. And I know that just in my own life with my own son, like we've had life-changing conversations, like walking to shul and walking back to shul. Like his whole life right now, his whole life took a, a turn just in terms of one particular conversation that we had. And and that was done then. And, and you know, in, in a world where it's so hard to actually connect in a meaningful way, that is like one of the sort of like shocking or at least very surprising places where genuine conversations can be had. And and so that's a great thing. It reminds me of a, a story from the Sansa Rebbe. The Sansa Rebbe was walking to shul and his Hasidim, his followers, asked him, what do you do before you pray? And he answered, I pray. <laughs> so... The idea of prayer is so misunderstood and so important. I think the mistake that a lot of people make about prayer and why so many people really hate prayer, and maybe even hate prayer for an excellent reason, by the way, is because they're being forced to say words that they don't connect with out of a book that doesn't mean anything to them, and they're being told that that this is connecting to God, which is the highest thing in the world, and their soul is telling them that they're not doing at the moment. So they sense not only a disconnect, but a hypocrisy. So what's the solution? Because they're not wrong. People who experience that are not wrong. So let me just make the irony even more pointed, which is that the moment the exact moment that people feel least connected to God is when they're praying. This is true for a great percentage of Jews. So what is the solution to this? And let's like unravel this because that what I gave you was like a series of very tightly knotted statements. Okay, so let's unravel it for a moment. So the solution is what Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says, and this is the game changer. The game changer in terms of a person's spirituality, right? The front lines, the front lines of changing your life. And it's talking to God like he's your best friend. That's what Rabbi Nachman says. Talk to God like he's your best friend. Everything begins there. And and the example that I always think of, because I just, I feel it every time I say it, which is that I remember I said an after bracha, after I had had a, a drink, and then, and then I said in my own words to God, I said, thank you, God, that coffee was so delicious. <laughs> and I felt, I felt those words like soar, like they went straight up. They went straight up. The, the, the technical afterbrocha that I had said, which I found out after the fact, by the way, you're not supposed to say an afterbrocha on a hot drink, by the way. That's the that that is the that is the custom. So so don't say one after coffee, but um, but anyway, I didn't know that at the time. But 
the, the, the point is, is that when I said, wow, God, that was so good. Thank you so much. I was actually in at that moment an authentic relationship and an authentic moment of communication and sharing with God. And, and that's what we're supposed to do. When you, when you walk down the street, God, what a beautiful day. Look at that. Look at, ah, oh, look at that cloud. Those clouds are so giant and puffy. Like what, what is going, wow. Look at that tree. Thank you, God. Wow, I'm so glad that I'm walking. This is like amazing, you know, or whatever it is. Like actually talk to God or God, you know, you know, the rent is due. What, what am I going to do? I'm not quite sure how I'm going to figure this out, you know, or what, whatever it is. You open up the refrigerator. I, uh, thank you. Look at my refrigerator, God. How did you fill it with so many things? Thank you. Like this is, this is authentic. This is Torah in action. This is like the meaning of life in action. And, and the beautiful thing is, is that you're talking about small things for the most part. You can talk about very exalted things. What am I going to do with my life, God? You can, you can talk about those things too. But there's something really beautiful about talking about the small things also that brings you so close because you realize how immediate and how detailed your relationship with God is and how God is in absolutely everything. And you realize also that there is no such thing as a secular moment. If God fills the entire world, then God is in everywhere, in everything, at every time. So there is no such thing as a secular moment. And this is like, this, this idea of, of not just talking to God like your best friend, but God becomes your best friend. And just, I, I just want to make sure we're communicating. You know, I realized, how do you make a friend? Right? So, so let's just, let's take a case study in making a friend, right? You go to a party and you meet someone and it's like, oh, you're into that. I, I, I love that. Yes. No, I've also been there. What? No, no, no. I've never been there. You haven't been there. You want to go? I'd love to go there. That would be an amazing thing. Yeah, and then this other, th- and, and you're, you're, you're connecting on things that you have in common and things that you want to do, and you're going back and forth. And then you go home and you go, you know what? I think I just made a friend. So now, let's, let's take a step back now. How did you make that friend? And you know what the answer is? By talking. You made that friend by, by talking. And so if it's true with another human being, how much more so is it true with God? You want to make friends with God, right? You want a real, tangible relationship with God. You talk to God. And so, so the point I'm trying to make is to contrast two words, praying and talking. Praying is very beautiful too. And those words that are in the book that the sages sort of like, you know, compiled are like endlessly deep and important. But first talk to God. And if once you establish that relationship over time, you're going to be able to 
get to the point where you see the wisdom in the depths of the prayers themselves. One of the remarkable things about the way the prayers are composed is it says, Baruch Atah. Atah means you. And that is a direct conversation with God. We kind of just read over it and we don't fully appreciate the face-to-face intimacy that we're being granted with the divine. So they composed this language of Baruch Atah. Blessed are you, God. This relationship with God is right here in front of us right now. Now, there's also a lot of third person, but nonetheless, the beginning and the end is this almost shocking recognition of God's presence in the here and now. The Psalms themselves are so deep and they speak to us so, so clearly and directly. One of my favorite teachings is the Medrash. It says that King David would waken in the middle of the night and how would he know it was the middle of the night? Because he would hang his harp over his bed and a a wind would come in and it would strum the, the strings of the harp so it was like an ancient holy alarm clock. And, and he would wake up and he would pray to God that God should allow him to hear the prayers of the Jewish people. And God would take his soul to a very high place. And it says King David would hear all the prayers of the Jewish people and that he would write them down. And so that the book of Psalms is actually a compilation of all the prayers of the Jewish people. And that's why it's so universal to this day. And among multiple faiths, by the way, they really draw inspiration from the book of Psalms. But if you think about it, it's, it was this amazing, like, collating of, of, of not just his own prayers, but by, by everyone's prayers. We have to kind of, like, obliterate this concept that the place of prayer is a synagogue or shul. That's like a really... I would almost say a primitive notion of what prayer is. Prayer can be everywhere and anywhere and should be everywhere and anywhere. Maybe not the bathroom, by the way. And that's not because God doesn't exist in the bathroom. That isn't because God didn't create our digestive tracts, for goodness sakes. By the way, you know, if you want to understand what is digestion, like why should we even have to go to the bathroom or something like that? There is a very interesting kind of philosophical idea, which is that when you take in information, you have to be discriminating about it and you have to reject unuseful and false information. And that this plays out in the physical realm as well. That's the idea of waste matter. That is things that you are taking in, in this case in a physical way, but what I'm trying to relate to you right now is that this involves also information that happens in a non-physical way and you have to digest thought and reject false thought. That's very important. You know, one of the greatest things I ever heard in my life was it's possible to learn new incorrect things. Like that's a very shocking idea to most people, which is that you, most people think the more I learn, the more information I gather, the, the, the smarter I am, the more I know. But it's, it's totally possible. And we see in this, without getting too political right now, we see today there is just this rampant amount of misinformation in the world. 
And people are learning things that are just bizarro and embracing them as, as, as wisdom and things like that. So, so critical thinking is very essential. So the idea is by not praying in the bathroom, not that bathrooms are somehow out, outside the realm of God's jurisdiction or that he didn't create digestion itself, but it's a sign of respect, that's all. But I read something from Rabbi Nachman of Breslov that I thought was so beautiful. You can't pray in the bathroom. You can't learn Torah in the bathroom. By the way, you want to hear something interesting? How would our greatest minds, people like the Vilna Gon, what would they do in the bathroom during that time there? They would learn mathematics and astronomy and the sciences. Isn't that amazing? Then, in other words, they didn't have, they didn't take time off from their incredibly rigorous learning schedules. They learned secular mathematics and science during that time. Isn't that great? So anyway, let me tell you what Rebbe Nachman of Breslov says, and this is something you can use. And ah, every time you, do, every time I do this, I feel great. Which is, you're not allowed to pray in the bathroom because it's it's disrespectful. However, you know what you can do you can long to pray in the bathroom. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? You can, you can have this thought, and this is a beautiful thought. Oh, God, I wish I could pray to you now. <laughs> God, I wish I could learn your Torah now. Right? And that combines the best of both worlds, because you're showing the proper respect. You are behaving in the properly dignified manner, and yet you're not detaching yourself. In fact, you're connecting yourself in a different, new, beautiful way. I'll tell you another thought on this subject, not on the bathroom, we're off that subject now, but, but just another thought from Rabbi Nachman, which, which, which relates to this, which, which I've experienced in my own lifetime. I can tell you that this, this is 100% true and a, and a very awesome piece of information, which is that Let's say you're at a bus stop. I heard this from Reb Shlomo. Let's say you're at a bus stop and you want to learn Torah, but you don't have a Torah book with you. Let's say you don't have, you know, a chumash with you, a copy of the Torah. But, but you want to learn. So if you don't have, if you don't have, say, a chumash, that's the five books, you don't have a chumash with you, a copy of that book. So you know what God does if you're longing to learn Torah? God teaches you from the Torah above. And I'm telling you, I have experienced that in my lifetime. And it comes from this power of longing. This power of longing, this power of desire, unlocks certain heavenly things. It's a very, very amazing, amazing thing. So... Let's go a little bit further with that. Because I once thought of something that it's a visual. You ready for this? Imagine you have a vault. And imagine in this vault is billions, billions of dollars worth of valuables. Right? Billions, billions of dollars in this vault. And now imagine the only way to open this vault is with a particular key, right? Now, let's say it doesn't cost much to manufacture this key. Maybe it costs 
a few dollars to manufacture this key. But this key is the only way into this vault that has billions of dollars in it. Now, here's my question. You ready? How much is that key worth? <laughs> and you know what the answer is? That key is worth billions of dollars. <laughs> Because that key is the only way into the vault. If you don't have that key, you don't have the billions of dollars, which means that key is worth billions of dollars. I didn't ask you how much it cost. I asked you how much is it worth? So what does that have to do with us? Well, what, what does the vault stand for and what does the key stand for? Well, you can assign it different values. You can assign it different values. But let's just, let's, I'll, I'll give you a few, okay? Let's say that that vault represents the Zmana Tikkun, right? The, the, the era of perfection, where there's no war or hatred or hunger in the world, right? Where everyone knows that there's one God in the world. So then, then what's the key? The key is Torah. And you want to hear something amazing? It's the, the key is free. Torah is free. So the key is also desire. Because everything begins with desire. And then there has to be a maturation process. You know, we, we've got this, this tension between what our eyes see and what's actually true. And sometimes they overlap. And tragically, most of the time, in terms of the bigger things, they don't overlap. Let, let me... Let me just go deeper for a moment. You know, in the, in the Holy Svarim, in the Holy Jewish books, one of the names of this world is Olam HaSheper, which means this world is called the world of lies. L-I-E-S, lies. So, by the way, that doesn't mean that we have a negative view of this world. That's just one of the names of this world in order to make a particular point, which I'll go into in a moment. But... In fact, we believe this world is extraordinarily good. And God says over and over in the opening of, of the Torah, you know, when he's going day by day and telling us what he made on each day, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. You know, and God himself is good, so everything is good. And yet this world is called the world of lies. That's one of the names. Why? It's not that this world is filled with liars, and that's why it's called the world of lies. That's not why it has that name. It's called the world of lies because what this world wants to tell you is that all that exists is this world that you see around you. That's why it's called the world of lies. Because this world wants to convince you that all that exists is what you see around you with your eyes. And not only that, but that unless you can possess all the things that you see with your eyes, you have nothing. 
And that's why this, called is, this world is called the world of lies, Olam HaSheker. Because we know that this world is so much bigger than what we can see with our eyes. And so you have this tension. I said to you that the key, the key to the treasure, right, in its most elemental form, I believe is desire, right? To long for something. But then that longing has to mature into action. See, if you want to put it another way, it's like desire or longing is almost like the mold for the key, right? Or the idea that there is a key, but then you have to actually have the key itself. In other words, desire has to mature into action. Longing has to mature into action. And you see, we, we think of the maturation process, or on some level anyway, is a person grows up, they're a child, then they get taller, then they get even taller, and then their body shows, shows signs of maturity in different ways. And then at a certain point, a person thinks that they're grown. And this is a lie. <laughs> I mean, true. I mean, that's true on a physical level. But the essence of a person's life is not their physicality. The essence of a person's life is their continual spiritual development, psychological development, refinement, elevation. And this continues until our last breath. So I want to get back to this conversation that I had I'm walking to shul yesterday morning at Shabbos morning, and I, I, I see someone who who I sort of know, I sort of don't know. <laughs> you know, those of you who go to shul on a regular basis, you'll find that there's a very sort of interesting dynamic that you'll have with many, many people, which is that you kind of know them well, and you also don't even know their names. It's kind of funny, but but those of you who 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 go regularly, We'll know what I'm talking about. You know, there's like this real sense of strong camaraderie, and yet you also kind of don't know the people at the same time. So it's, it's kind of funny, it's kind of interesting, but it's kind of beautiful at, at the same time, all together. So one of these people who sort of like was this holy acquaintance, let's say, but you know, at the, on the other hand, sort of very much a soul brother at the same time, right? So so I'm walking to shul, and He's on his way to shul, but it's a little early for him, so he's walking his dog, but, you know, he's on his way to shul a little bit later. And uh, I guess he's heard me speak before. So we wish each other a good Shabbos. And then he says to me, you know, while we're together, since we're walking together, tell me a, tell me a Torah thought. So the first thing that popped into my head was... It says in the Shema, right, in the, in the Via Hafta, that you're supposed to uh, that you're supposed to talk about God over Lech when you're walking in the road. So I said, here you want to tour thought? Well, here we are walking together in the road. So we have a commandment to discuss the oneness of God while we're walking in the road. And then, since we were still walking together, <laughs> it was clear that that was not a long enough thought. Anyway, he ends up walking me about a mile, by the way. So this turns into a much longer discussion. 
But, which I'll tell you, but let's backtrack for one moment. Which is, if you zoom out from that passage in the Shema, so it says, when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking on your way, and when you lie down and rise up. Oh, these are the times when we should have in mind the oneness of God and discuss it and all the rest. So I saw from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haber an amazing, amazing commentary on these words. So try to remember this because you're saying these words all the time and you can have some very exalted thoughts based on this commentary. You ready? When you're sitting in your house, what does that mean? You ready for this? When your soul is dwelling in the realm of souls before you're born in this world. <laughs> That's what means. When you're sitting in your house, right? Your soul before it's born in this world. When you're walking on your way is your entire lifetime in this world. Isn't that amazing? When you're walking on your way, that's from the moment you're born until our last breaths. And when you lie down and when you rise up, that's when a person ends their life. And when you rise up, that's referring to Techias Amesim, the resurrection of the dead. Isn't that awesome? That those free, three phrases when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking on your way, when you lie down and when you rise up, that's referring to from before you're born, during your entire lifetime in this world, and at the time when you rise up from the dead at the end of days. That you should be focused on the oneness of God and discussing the oneness of God. Unbelievable, right? It's unbelievable. What's contained in the Torah? It's like endless, 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 endless. And it never gets less deep. So, there's a classic Torah work called Gesher HaChayim, which means the bridge of life. And a lot of people read it after they've lost a, a loved one. And in Gesher HaChayim, the, the author writes that this world is a bridge between two infinities. In other words, the time before a person's born, that's an infinite realm. And the time after this lifetime, that's another infinite realm. And that this world is actually just a bridge between two infinities. We tend to think of this world as just all there is, and yet we see that it's just the tiniest connection between two great infinities. When we're sitting in our houses and when we rise up at the end of our life. So let's just think about that for a moment. So we're talking about this. And then he says something to me that like really moved me. You know, he said, I want to do everything absolutely purely, with a pure heart. And he said, sometimes I'll do something for someone else, 
like a mitzvah or a favor. And really in the back of my mind, I want something from that person. And he was pained by that. He was pained by that. And I'll just tell you what I I said to him, because it's like, I hadn't really like thought of this thought before, but it just made so much sense that I just want to share it with, with all of you as well. I said, listen, there's no problem having that thought. The fact that you have needs, everyone has needs. There's nothing wrong with having needs. God actually blesses us with needs, right? So, so what's the problem? The problem is that you're, you're looking to this person, right? So, so the next time you have one of those thoughts where you're doing something or you want to do something on someone else's behalf, but really you want something from that person, I said, just take a moment to just sort of like clarify your, your, your thoughts and to purify your heart and to be aware of the fact that you are now being put in touch with a need that you have. And take that need and say to God, God, I have this need, right? And I know only you can bring me the solution, can bring me the answer to this need. And please know that I want to do this mitzvah for this other person, but I also know that everything comes from you. And I said, at that moment, when you say those things, you'll be clarifying that moment because there's nothing wrong with needing something or wanting something. And there's nothing wrong with thinking that this person can actually help you. But just don't think that this person is your salvation. God is your salvation. God is the one who's going to save you. And he might save you through this person. But don't look to this person for salvation. Only look to God for salvation. And when you clarify your thinking, then you're on solid ground again. And I don't know, this this resonates with me. I hope it resonates with you. Because one of the things about this world is that, I don't know, there's, there's something that, that is kind of funny, you know? Sometimes you look at, at just even recent history, and it looks so utterly primitive, just like compared to a few years later. Can I give you an example? We'll connect it to what we just said in a moment. Do you remember, what, what were they called? No pest strips, something like that? Do you remember they would hang them in restaurants and in diners, They would be these yellow strips that would hang from the ceiling and you'd see like big black dead flies attached to them. And there was a time in our history where you would walk into this place with with like insect carcasses and say, oh, what a cleanly place I'm in. (laughs) Like these people have done the great service of cleansing the air of flies. But meanwhile, they've got these dead animals hanging from the ceiling. I mean, I can't imagine that that this is anything short of a headquarters of disease that they were hanging from the center of the room. And yet it seems so enlightened, like, wow, this is like the headquarters of hygiene. Like, you know, there's the proof. Look, they're the dead bodies. 
So, so what's my point? My point is, is that this world is like that sticky, no pest strips. This world is, is that we have needs and we interact with all these different aspects of the world and we stick to these things. And we think that my, that, that the salvation is going to come from this place or the salvation is going to come from that place. Because this world is so sticky. This is getting back to this idea of olama sheker, the world of lies, right? That the world is telling you, the world itself will fix your problems. The world will fix your problems. So one of our primary avodas, he- heavenly acts of service, is to be able to clarify our hearts and to clarify our minds that we can interact with this world while simultaneously understanding that everything comes from God. And to only receive from God. This is really, really important. You know? And especially as we advance in the business world and in the academic world and, and, you know, in all these different areas that we're putting so much of our life force into, to realize whenever you get something, to receive directly from God, consciously. And I'll tell you something. I may have shared it with you before, but I do this exercise with myself on a regular basis, and I recommend it to all of you, which is that I'll say to myself, my livelihood, like I'll think of all the people in my business life, and I'll name them by name. And I'll say, my livelihood is not coming from this person. And my livelihood is not coming from this entity. And my livelihood is not coming from this streamer. And this li- my livelihood is not coming from this, you know, network. And I'll name them by name. And I'll name all of the people by name in my life. That it's only coming from you, God. And I, I really recommend this. You name, and you know, you have this conversation with yourself. You, 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 you name the actual people that you're receiving from. And, and, and you clarify in your mind you are only receiving from God directly. Only receive from God directly. Now, now you have to understand a partner thought to this. Because that's just half the thought. Which is you have to be utterly grateful and respectful to all of the people that you are engaged with on this business level or on this professional level. In other words, this doesn't free you. This recognition that you're only consciously receiving from God doesn't free you from being a mensch and from being a very responsible person in terms of your relationships with these other people. See, this. a lot of people just... They, they feel liberated by the notion that there's a God that, that runs the entire world. And once a lot of people, and this is a, a big mistake in people who become, quote unquote, more spiritual. Once they realize this great truth that only God exists and he's running the whole world, it lessens their respect and their sense of responsibility and obligation to the people around them. And this is, a, this is a great disservice, and this is not Judaism, and this is not Torah. This is, this is lack of maturity and lack of understanding. 
you, 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 must, you must be upright in all of your dealings with people. You must be. You must be. Otherwise, you can call it whatever you want, but you're not, you, don't, you better not call it Torah because it is not Torah. So, but then again, that art form of, of balancing that level of respect and responsibility and gratitude to other people, while simultaneously you understand that the blessing is coming 100% from God. That's another one of these very tricky things to balance in this life and in this world. I'll give you another example of this because, because life is actually just filled with them. And, and this is really like, you know, when we talk about, I don't know if you've heard this phrase, you probably have. When we talk about spiritual mastery, what, what does spiritual mastery mean? Well, one large part of what it means is balancing opposites. Balancing opposites and being able to, 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 to live both of these sides simultaneously. And it's hard to do. And, and I'll give you another example and then I'll give you a visual to connect with it because it's... So Rabbi Nachman of Breslov says that with every new level of attainment that you reach, you have to realize all over again that you know absolutely nothing. <laughs> and it's very hard to do because after you learn a tremendous piece of wisdom, it is normal to think you know something. <laughs> and it is totally easy to forget that you know nothing. And so it has to come to you almost as a brand new idea that you know nothing. So, I remember just last week, I was, I poured myself a, a, a glass of tea and it was in one of these hot cups. But I, I think you've probably all experienced this in your life. Sometimes the water is so ridiculously hot that if you hold the cup, that it will burn your hand. So, you know, some someone came up with those coffee sleeves that you put on and you know, the, the, that can help. I, I, I didn't do that at the time. So I picked up this cup. This was just last week. And it was burning me. I, I, I was looking for a place to, to, to put it down. And, and my hand was like going back and forth because it was so hot. I was spilling water, which was now burning water spilling around. And, and I was finally able to put it down. And it was like, wow, is that hot? So, so it made me think, you know something? I've had that complete opposite experience. Have you ever experienced this where you've held like a can of soda or something like that that was so cold it was burning your hand? Have you ever had that experience? I have. So can you imagine what it's like? Can you imagine in one hand you're holding something that's burning hot and in the other hand you're holding something that's burning cold <laughs> at the same time? So how do you remember that you know something when you just learn something amazing? <laughs> so Reb Shlomo gave a, a teaching that I'll never forget. 
And, and interestingly, he said it over in response to a question that I asked him. And I'll tell you the, the question because it, it, it's going to be an answer to what we've just been discussing. But it's interesting that he gave this answer to this question. Okay. So I said to him, you know, is that the kind of the beginning of my, my taking on more Torah observance at this stage in my life? And I, I said to him, you know, as you learn more, how do you stay on fire, right? Because a lot of people, when they first start off in terms of their kind of their spiritual journey, their spiritual enlightenment, they're so completely inspired. And then kind of like the 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 flame gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And then for a lot of people, sadly, tragically, it just kind of, you know, just kind of goes down to an ember and it's kind of it. So how do you keep the fire going? And so Reb Shlomo gave the following answer. And again, I'm offering this as an answer to how do you remember that you know nothing as you learn something? And, and, and here's the visual. So awesome. He said that with each new piece of information you learn, you have to regard it as a single jigsaw puzzle piece when you don't have any of the other pieces. <laughs> okay, let me, let me explain that. So, you know, a jigsaw puzzle has, depending on the puzzle, has, you know, a hundred pieces, 500 pieces, a thousand pieces. So can you imagine you're handed one jigsaw puzzle piece and you don't have the other 999 pieces? So, so that would make you very humble, wouldn't it? You'd be like, well, I got one piece, but that's just one piece. So that's what Reb Shlomo is telling you, that when you learn a new piece of information, you should regard it as receiving just a single piece, but you don't have the rest of the pieces of the puzzle. Isn't that awesome? I think that's awesome because it allows you to actually possess the thing itself, the new information, and at the same time, now be aware of how much you still don't know. You see, we don't know how much we don't know. <laughs> and one way of learning how much you don't know is to learn something new. If you learn something new in the way Reb Shlomo is saying it, you've got one piece on the other 9,999 you don't have. So now you've been given this great new gift of now knowing a little bit more of what you don't know. <laughs> you now have a little bit of a greater idea of the infinity and the vastness of God. But that's an art form. Because most people will get one more piece of information and just think, ah, I know that much more. And they won't see it as a gateway to now knowing how little they know. Do you know how exalted a way to go through life that is? 
that everything you learn you see as a gateway to like vast tracks of new information that you don't have access to? How knowledge can keep you in a place of wonderment as opposed to arrogance? Because the direct simple path is that it just leads you to being a know-it-all. And who wants to be around a know-it-all? You know, the, the Gomorrah itself says that God can't stand arrogant people. You, you know why? He, it says he can't be in the presence of arrogant people. Because basically God is saying, so to speak, you know what, if you already know everything, then what do you need me for? <laughs> so I'm going to go away because it sounds like you're in control. So good luck. You know, we we have to we have to engrave this this new narrative in our minds. Because this world, again, getting back to this idea of the Olama Sheker, the world of lies, this world just wants to judge you and assess you as to you are as great as what you've accumulated. But imagine if what you've accumulated is all the vast insights into what you haven't accumulated. <laughs> imagine how large a vessel you then become. Right? Because then literally everything is blowing your mind. Reb Shlomo said about the four sons, I heard an amazing, heard an amazing thing about the four sons. But before I tell you that, let me just tell you what Reb Shlomo said. He said that the fourth son is the one who can't even ask. And he said in Hasidic thought, the fourth son, who's really considered the lowest because he can't even ask, right, is considered the highest. Why? Because, you know why he can't ask? Because he's too busy blowing his mind over the world. <laughs> he's like, what is that? <laughs> his mind is just going and going and going and going and going and going and going. He can't even ask. Because he's just drinking in all the infinity. So, so let me just put it maybe in a more practical way. But this is just off of Reb Shlomo's teach, teaching about the puzzle piece. When you learn something new, ask yourself three questions based on that, that you don't know the answers to. <laughs> that will be the most, you know, and, and have Rachmanus, have mercy on the person who told you the thing, because he's probably not going to know the answers, you know? So, so don't expect to know the answers. Delight in the fact that you're not getting an answer. That's the point. Then if you want to pursue it on your own, pursue it on your own. But this will ground, this will ground in your mind and make real in your mind just this even more precious asset, which is this realm of not knowing. So let me just tell you this thing about the four sons that I, I thought was so interesting. So 
So the first son is the wise son, then the next son is the wicked son, and then the third son is the simple son, and then the fourth son is the one who can't even ask. So this rabbi was talking about it as a generational thing. Instead of thinking of four sons, think of four generations. And think of the path from connectedness to total assimilation. Right? The first son, that's the earlier generation, they know. Then the second generation, like if you think of in America, like after World War II, the generation of the people who arrived who knew, like were very Americanized and, you know, for the most part, rejectionists. You know, sadly, uh, you think of the people who were sailing into Ellis Island, right? And were literally throwing their tefillin off the ship into the ocean saying, okay, here we don't need this stuff. Can you imagine? Tragic, totally tragic. So that's the, the wicked son, the son who's rejectionist. Then you have the simple son, that's the next generation. They kind of know something and they have this sense of longing for their grandparents and a sense that there is this identity there, but, but they don't know much, they're simple. And then you have the one who can't even ask, total assimilation. I, I never heard it like recent Jewish history put in the context of the four sons before. But it's striking. It's striking. But you know something? Then you have that next, then you have that next son. Right? And, you know, it's put in the language of sons, but of course we're talking about men and women together. Where, where the Jewish people remain tied to the oneness of God and to all the generations. And then, you know, something just reconnects you. And you make this discovery. It says, all are blind until Hashem opens their eyes. God just opens up your eyes. And then you begin to ask questions. And hopefully, hopefully, hopefully you get steered to the right places. Okay. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.